Welcome to the She Wore Black podcast. I'm Agatha Andrews. Today, I've invited author Alexis Henderson to talk about her book, The House of Hunger. We discuss Elizabeth Bathory, blood symbolism, gothic horror, gothic romance, and the sensuality of taste. You can order your copy of House of Hunger from my online bookshop, which helps both the podcast as well as independent bookstores nationwide. That's at bookshop.org slash shop slash she wore black. You can also help out the show by following me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and leaving me a review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining me today. Now on to the show. Well, Alexis Henderson, I am so, so excited to have you on the show today. I know your book's been out for a little while, uh, but you know, books don't expire. So I'm glad that you came on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this for literally months. So, <laughs> Oh, yay. Um, I have all these people in my DMs excited for it too. So this, this is going to be good. We're going to make it awesome. So <laughs> one of the things that I want to say is that I love that you're you know, you did a witch book last time, you did a vampire-ish book this time. And I love that you're just ticking all my boxes. So <laughs> thank you for being in my id. Thank you. Thank you. I, I'm always happy to hear that because I'm like, I personally like writing my way through all of like the tropes and the monsters. And I hope other people like get down with that too. So it makes me relieved because I have no intention of stopping. <laughs> hey, well, I know, like I said, I know this book's been out for a little while, but for anyone who hasn't heard of it yet or doesn't, you know, they've seen the gorgeous cover, but haven't read it yet. Why don't you let us know what it's about? So um, House of Hunger is uh, kind of like a gothic, dark fantasy novel. It follows our main character, Marion, um, who lives in the slums of a city called Prane. That's ex- um, it's kind of inspired by the slums of like Victorian London. Um, and she wants to get out and wants a better life for herself. So she applies um, to this ad in a newspaper that's um, requesting a blood maid. And a blood maid is someone who essentially sells their blood um, and their and their life, their whole entire life, everything, um, to one of the rich uh, lords or ladies who lives in the north, where all of the aristocrats are, and they drink blood um, recreationally, sometimes for their health as well. Um, and uh, Marion is employed by uh, Countess Lisbeth, um, and they begin this kind of uh, obsessive relationship, and, and from there, it's kind of like a game of cat and mouse as Marion uncovers like dark secrets about Lisbeth and the house that she occupies, the House of Hunger. Um, I love that there is a very much reference to or inspiration of Elizabeth Bathory Mm. in here. And, you know, I went through an Elizabeth Bathory phase. As did I. (laughs) (laughs) Right of passage. (laughs) Isn't it though? Like Mm -hmm. if you're, if you're dark and Gothic souls, uh, you have an Elizabeth Bathory phase. Um, and, and it coincided with my queen of the damned phase for some reason or another, I always associate Stuart Townsend slinking around in his leather pants with (laughs) my Elizabeth Bathory phase. So for people who might not know who that is, she is a historical figure. Do you want to tell us a little bit about Elizabeth Bathory and what you drew from that for this book? Yeah, so um, Elizabeth Bathory was a countess and um, she was known or rumored to have drunk drink the blood of her her servants, um, or not drink the blood, bathe in the blood, really. There was rumors that she may have 
um, kind of been like vampiric and drank blood. Um, but I think most people say that she just kind of bathed in the blood of her servants um, to give her like youth. Um, and a lot of the vampire stories we have today were inspired by her, um, which I think is just really cool. I don't know. She's known to be kind of like one of the first female serial killers. I've heard her kind of coin that way as well. Um, and yeah, she's just a fascinating character. She really is. Um, I'm I'm kind of when I was younger, I went through this like obsession with her as as well, where I like watched um all these like movies about her and read all these books about her, and I was kind of trying to make my own mind up like as if I could solve this like centuries old mystery. Like, did she do it? Did she not? Like, you know, at like twelve years old, I was like determined. I was like a sleuth. I was like, I can figure this out. I can go where no historian has gone before. Um, and I think eventually I, I gave up that that like quest. Um, and just kind of began to kind of I don't know like examine um I think with House of Hunger I was more interested in examining people's responses to her than the character herself so you know I, I was really loosely inspired by her as I was writing but I felt like her kind of that that kind of early obsession that I had with her was definitely at the heart of this story and I think why I was so obsessed with my own kind of rendition of her which is Lisbeth the character that I created for this book um, as someone, I, my career was a school librarian. I was a public librarian for a while too, but at, most of it was as a school librarian, uh, with teens. And so it pleases me deeply to know that your phase was at 12 years old and that you were determined to solve this mystery. <laughs> I was so determined. I was like, I think I even like got books from the library and I was like, I can figure this out. Like <laughs> the confidence of a child, I suppose. I don't know. I don't think my mom realized that when I was like, oh, I'm looking at to history that that was the history I was looking into I think she would have been like you're a little young for this but you know I don't know I middle school and high school kids are some of the darkest most macabre creatures out there and which is why I love them um Mm, I was like you know they and I kind of had the library you know when I was a librarian I would definitely create a safe space for all these teens that came in with their weird interests and you know I also think that what what you are describing is also a lot of the basis for YA novels you know teens trying to solve a problem or solve a mystery or I mean even Scooby-Doo you have teens like trying to get to the bottom of something I absolutely love this Scooby-Doo for the record I was kind of like an aside (laughs) but like I think that that's probably why it's like there's this like something so empowering about like feeling like you can like get down to all the answers that maybe other people couldn't or you could see things in a new way it's like you're kind of testing your 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 legs and trying to see if like you can kind of stand on your own and figure things out for yourself for the first time I think that's such a cool thing about that age and I kind of wish that adults never really aged out of that because curiosity is such a strength I feel when it comes to creativity and I think part of me when I'm writing is always trying to like get back to that level of like confidence and like it's like half confidence half curiosity um yeah oh for sure and now that we know that it kind of warms my heart that this you know uh beautiful and gruesome book has 12 year old Alexis in it (laughs) 12 year old Alexis was a weird kid and I feel like yeah I think I I hope that I, I I did her proud I hope that like past me would still think that I was like cool and that you know Uh, I did the things that there's no reading this book and not thinking you're cool (laughs) (laughs) thank you well I have 
an anecdote off of the Elizabeth Bathory thing that leads into my next question, because you might get a kick out of it. So my Queen of the Dam slash Elizabeth Bathory, because again, they go hand in hand, phase uh, was in my late 20s. It was much older than 12. Um, but I was in a creative writing class and um and it wasn't for a college or anything it was just one of those things you do with groups like writing groups and stuff and we were given an exercise you know 15 or 20 minutes to write off a prompt and I had learned the word at that time abattoir so I'm like I'm determined to put that in a story so of course I make it an Elizabeth Bathory story <laughs> love it <laughs> and the and the women in the class because it was primarily like it was either YA writers or like quote unquote like women's fiction kind of writers um and here I am over here with this gothic story um that you know is got an Elizabeth Bathory-esque uh, character in there and it's funny because the story was not intentionally sexy or sensual I was writing about the hypocrisy of the patriarchy because you know it's me and um <laughs> and these women were reading it and they were like squirming in their chairs kind of going oh my gosh you know <laughs> they, were like, they were like this is really sensual and it's making me like something I don't want to like and I was like oh my god <laughs> I love it. I would have loved to be in a class with you in college. I feel like we've gotten on so well. Oh, that's so funny. That. Well, and the reason why I'm even revealing that, and I still have that story somewhere. It's actually on that shelf over there. Um, but the reason why I'm telling you this is because blood is a very sensual or sexy thing, even in a brutal context. Mm. And I have theories on why that is, you know, like, crimson peak and vampires and all of that is very brutal um but there is still this sensuality to it and and i'd love to get your thoughts i mean again like i have my theories but i want to know alexis's theories on why that is oh man i have so many so i think the, the one that comes to mind first is that i think like women who have periods oftentimes associate blood with this like coming of age you know, and that's not synonymous, obviously, but, you know, I think for those of us who do get the period or like our right. little girls are anticipating, or for me, uh, honestly, mix of anticipating and dreading this like thing that kind of marked my entrance into womanhood. So I think that's why maybe early associations with like kind of with blood, we kind of align those with womanhood. And then as we grow older, maybe sensuality. But I also think that there's this sort of, um, I don't know. I think blood oftentimes represents passion and sacrifice and strong emotion in general. You know what I mean? It's kind of a vessel for that. It's a vessel or a symbol of like violence. Um, and I think that oftentimes, especially in Gothic literature, the the line between violence and love can, can blur in ways that are quite scary. Um, and, but also kind of intriguing and it makes people curious and it feels illicit and um so that was something I definitely was like exploring with House of Hunger I think that like I it's right in the title I was obsessed with this idea of hunger and starvation and want while I was writing this book of like wanting someone or something so badly it feels like a very visceral kind of carnal craving and that I think that blood was like a fascinating um vessel for that message or a way for me to kind of examine that and I think vampires immediately come to mind you know it's like oh, for yeah. them their hunger and their desire are kind of so interlocked you know you're not really sure sometimes when you look at a vampire like what they're hungering for exactly um is it just the blood or is it like the entire experience of like taking the blood from someone who's 
willing to give it to you or not willing. I mean, it's very, it gets very, very blurry and interesting. And there's all of these offshoot conversations that I feel um, kind of spring from this point of like questions of like consent and questions of like what is right and what is wrong. And, and can, when does desire become something dangerous and harmful and obsessive, even if you are, you know, participating with someone who's willing, like that was something I um, kind of was juggling or toying with, with House of Hunger. I was like, is there kind of a way for this relationship to be healthy or not abusive is there is there any sort of way to realize this relationship where it isn't kind of inherently wrong because of the imbalance of power between Marion and the person that she's quite literally working for who holds her life in the palm of her hand um I'm like a completely like moved off of the blood topic but I think that no no that's that, it's all relevant absolutely yeah. I'm sitting here like nodding because I'm like yes of course yeah. I, I feel like blood was it's like such a good I think it was just kind of I keep coming back to the word vessel it was a vessel for all of that um, and it's a, it was kind of a symbol of all of that while I was writing. And I feel like it kind of carried so much for me. Um, and also just the visuals are beautiful. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not sure everyone agrees with me here, but I think that, you know, the idea of like a slick of blood running down a, a woman's neck, it's just kind of like inherently for me, a very beautiful image. And I think that, um, but it's also a scary one. So I think there's all of these things, all these things that kind of are running through my head. And I think the blood was just a really cool way for me to express all of the things that all the thoughts that I have in my head about these, these topics, all of these topics. It's funny. You said so many things that I'm like, yes, I want to talk about all of those things. Um, <laughs> I should have taken notes, uh, but the, real quick on the, on the thing with the neck, I don't know if you've seen, um, there's someone on Etsy who makes necklaces that are made to look like pearl necklaces with dripping blood. She uses red yes. beads. Yes. Yeah. Almost like, I think I have some of those on my house of hunger Pinterest board where it almost looks like <laughs> a slit throat sort of look. Yeah. 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 yeah I love those. I also thought the connection, everything that you're saying, consent was so important here and connected to our continuously grappling with sex work and, yeah. you know, consent and everything and our attitude towards that. And I just thought that was really interesting um, and a very relevant parallel. Yeah. Yeah. That was definitely something I considered. There was a point when I started writing this book, I was like, there's no way that I can't meet can be talking about this and writing this world without also kind of weighing the discussions that are ongoing about sex work um and the two I think you know some people have asked me is it a metaphor for sex work and I was like not intentionally but I don't think that there really is a, that the two are necessarily different the way that I wrote right. the blood made trade in the book and you know it's it's a form of that you know they're quite literally selling their blood their bodies and their souls I think that's some version of that line is in the book itself where it's like you know there is this this kind of um, really intimate connection with the people that they're working for. And, um, you know, it, it, it gets, it's like a very, it's very interesting though, because it's like the lines in, in the house of hunger, they aren't kind of necessarily clear. It's not clearly explained like what these girls are kind of signing up for, what they're getting into. And, and there's these like moments where I feel like each character is kind of trying to define their own relationship and their own boundaries, but the world itself is kind of so, encompassing and the balance of power is so great that it's really difficult sometimes for me to see how if there is even a way for these girls to kind of fully consent when they don't know what's going on and that's kind of was something that I found really troubling because I think that you know those aren't those aren't my feelings on sex work specifically but in this in this world you know it was it was a really difficult thing because I was just like wait a minute you know 
these girls are giving so much and like right. it's not kind of being clearly stated these established boundaries or even this established structures of like pay and what they're giving and 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 how they'll be compensated for that all of that was kind of it was kind of hidden from from them and even from me because I'm seeing the world through Marion's eyes and so um it was very interesting to navigate that for sure um but one thing I really liked was Marion's comfort level with what she was doing I thought that she was her kind of confidence put me at ease because she was just like this is something that I wanted to do and she was okay with with entering into this trade and she I think she for the most part like for what she thought she was signing up for like what she could have known I don't want to spoil the book she entered with her eyes open and was like comfortable in her decision I really liked her kind of her kind of confidence just about her sexuality in general she's like I've been with women and I'm fine with that and there wasn't really this kind of like thing I need to get over this identity issue seated at the heart of her character and I don't I I love writing or reading about characters that do have kind of questions about their sexuality identity that are um, seated more closely to the heart of them but with Marion it was just kind of like she does what she's going to do and she's confident about that and it was so cool to write a character who's that confident about her own desires absolutely and what I was going to talk, it's funny you say that because that is a talking point I had later um, in my questions, but we can talk about that right now because um, I just had Paulette Kennedy on and had the same conversation with her about her characters in Witch of Ten Mountain because, you know, she's writing queer characters as well. She's like, I always wanted to see myself represented on the page without... Uh, we were talking because I'm a person of color and I know the pressure that you can get from an editor or whatever to write a marginalized character in a way where you have to announce it and then do one or two or say one or two stereotypical things to kind of prove that that's what you are and then you can write the story and it's so exhausting to do that you know one of the things that I loved about I don't know if you've read RJ Joseph's book but she she talked about when I interviewed her she was like I want I want a black women to be monsters I want a black women to do you know all these characters and 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 I love being that freedom that we're sort of forcing I feel like we're claiming our space Mm. Every marginalized, you know, uh, book that I see that's starting to do this now, I'm reading another one where we're sort of claiming our space unapologetically, where we're not allowing others to force us to do that here. I'm going to announce that I'm Latina and here's all the ways I got to prove it before I can actually tell my story, you know, that kind of stuff. Right. And I loved that about house of hunger. She's a person of color. She's queer. She's all of these things. And just, and she's just existing in spaces and not having to say, well, here, let me check these boxes first. Right. Exactly. It feels so freeing. I feel free when I write it and I feel free when I read it. And I love that we're just kind of occupying space, like you said, in that way. It feels like we're just kind of stretching out and we're like, yeah, let's make a home here. Like, you know, we deserve to be here as much as anyone else. And I love that. I love, I love that feeling of, it feels expansive and exciting. And I think people that might not have been inclined to pick us up are more inclined to pick us up that way. Whereas I feel like before, you know, and it hurt when I would hear like Sandra Cisnettos talk about it, like, well, you have to do these other things first, otherwise they won't pick us up. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. We can just write the stories that we want to write. And that should be enough. I absolutely agree. I strongly reject, like, re- I strongly reject the notion that we have to like earn our way in yeah. or kind of ease people in. It's like, you can either get on board or you won't like, right. I don't know. And it's just so crazy. I mean, I, I, this has been said so many times over, but like, if you can read a book about like high fae and people who aren't even and human, it shouldn't be that big of a jump just to read about someone who's a different race or has a different sexuality right. than you. You don't need to be eased in. You know what I mean? It's right. just like, I feel like we should just tell our stories the way we want to tell them. And 
people will get on board because our stories are good. Right, you know? right. And and that's how I it's yeah, that's kind of been my approach. And I think, you know, I think it's so it's I think it's really normal to feel this kind of sense of trepidation when you especially when you're first entering publishing, you're an emerging yes. voice. And I still consider myself an emerging voice, but I remember especially with writing the year of the witch and feeling kind of a lot more timid about, oh, can I win these readers over? And if I can't, like, what have a career, like who's going to show up for me? And now I'm just kind of more of the mind of just like, you can get on board or not. Like, you know, right. I'm going to tell the stories I'm going to tell. And there's a certain level of, I think, trust where you just kind of trust that the people who are going to show up for you will show up for you regardless. And that feels great. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's opening doors. So you're doing work for writers coming behind you too, you know, and that's probably got to feel pretty amazing. It does. And I, I, I feel like, I don't know, I, I think about the authors who I looked up to who are like writing, you know, when I was just not even querying yet. And I looked and looking at them being like, if they can do it, maybe I can too. And I feel like it's such an immense honor, but also a big responsibility to be kind of now one of the people who I hope is like kind of treading path for for other authors I mean that's a dream come true in itself I think I think that that might be actually in some ways like the more some of the most important work that any author can do is like making sure that the door stays open and there's a path so that other writers of color have hopefully an easier time of it um than than I did and you know and and then the the kind of cycle continues Yeah. yeah I want to go back to before I forget. And so I know that this is like ping ponging all over the place, but I want to go back to something you said earlier about consent, because it is important in this book. And you addressed a moment ago about how they were not completely informed. Right. But then that's not consent. And I love that you point that out, you know, like, Even when you think you know all the things, if you were not fully informed, it is not consent. It's not. No, no, exactly. No. But that was a really important point, but also like added layers to the story. So, right. Yeah. And it's like, it's interesting because it's like, I guess my opinion of, you know, I, I write by the seat of my pants oftentimes. So with House of Hunger, I had an idea of where it would end, but I didn't know exactly like every single detail about why certain things were revealed or what happened as I was writing. So it was really it was an experience <laughs> to like write the story and I'm living the story with Marion, right. And kind of, in kind of real time learning details as she's learning them. And then my opinion on how ethical the relationship is kind of changes with these, this information that's coming toward me kind of live in real time as Marion's learning it. That was really a strange and disorienting process to kind of reanalyze or reassess the relationship as certain things in the story happened that surprised me even as I was writing them you know it was it was interesting for sure one of the things that I also want to go back to on all of this is is blood because my theories about blood are similar to what yours were but I also wanted to kind of throw in that whole idea you know is it the Hemingway quote where he's like just sit down at a typewriter and bleed Mm. and you know, blood is the, like the core of who we are. And that's why he says that, right? But people with the uterus are bleeding every month. And yeah. ultimately, the point is to give life. Like we're not bleeding for ourselves. We're not bleeding for fun. We're not bleeding for any benefit for ourselves. The entire point is the ability to give life, right? Mm. And, you know, that's what's happening here in the story. The entire point is like curative or life-giving. So I thought that was like an interesting connection. And then also she, the character from the very beginning 
is just constantly giving of herself. She's giving oh. everything she does to her brother, yeah. um, you know, and so it's not just her survival, but it's a dependent survival, which goes back to the idea of, well, why do we bleed in the first place? Well, it's ultimately to give life and there are dependents and we nurture them. And you know, it, it's just kind of interesting, like the layers that are there so that women will understand your book in a visceral way or anybody with the uterus will understand your book in a visceral way going back to the aesthetics of it it does add this lush layer because red is a powerful color for a lot of different reasons you know there's just layer upon layer with this idea of blood (laughs) so yeah I love it I can't get away from it I'm like one of these days I have to write a book that is not (laughs) so enamored with blood starting to get a little obsessive in my own right but I think I agree with everything you're saying I think that this idea of like lifeblood is such a powerful symbol it's it's mm. yeah it's fascinating and I do think there is this kind of idea that I was toying with writing House of Hunger this idea of like givers and takers and Miriam yes. is certainly a giver and um you know whether it's her blood or her, her time or her effort when she was earning money for her brother or her care that's yeah very central to her character um and and a lot of the people around her are very different and i think it's interesting to see all those dynamics get exploited between the giver and the taker leading up to a word that you used in here which is a simple word but it's a very powerful word which is taste and i i felt like it was very purposeful your use of that word mm-hmm. um and every time i would read it i was like damn she knows what she's doing <laughs> because The word, let's go into the word taste. The Mm. reason why it's got so much power is, is because it is the most intimate sense that we have. Mm. Sight, smell, sound can all happen at a distance. Touch is a little bit more intimate, but not as intimate as taste. Mm, I agree. You know? And so, and then what happens in the book is like every, everything about a person can be detected their thoughts, their mm. feelings, their their history can be detected by the taste of their blood. Right. And I just thought I was like, she knows what she's doing. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I was sort of surprised actually by that. That was not an element when I was writing that I intended or planned out before I started writing the book. So when Elizabeth was at one point I wrote, was writing a scene and Elizabeth was having some variance blood and she starts saying all these things I'm like hold up what what is going on you know it was kind of something that felt like outside of me when that idea kind of came to me um but I think it makes so much sense you know in the book I was remember me being really obsessed with food and flavor there's a lot of food descriptions in the book and that's because I love eating but also right on yeah I love I love it but I think it's also because yeah I think you're right taste is so intimate and it's just like it's it was fascinating to sort of play with that. It's like the uh, something that could kind of hold or keep memories or information, um, and how much of yourself is kind of betrayed by the way that you taste, and 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 betrayed to the like the or portrayed really to the person who's consuming you. Um, it oh, felt yeah. It felt really. It felt kind of. It was cool, but exposing. I think even for me, I was just like as I'm writing about Marion, I was just like I don't know. I kind of felt like this need to like bundle myself up in a blanket. Like it was too. It was almost like a kind of like a live wire, like too intimate, like a touching on a nerve almost. It was, yeah, yeah. Those scenes were uncomfortable, but fun, right? I'm absolute trash anytime like a singer or songwriter uses it. Like if Damien Rice or Alice in Chains or whoever it is is going to sing the word taste, like my whole body reacts. (laughs) (laughs) 
right? And it's such a compliment. I feel yeah. like when, you know, for, I can totally see how when Marion was talking to Elizabeth, Elizabeth was like, oh, you taste good or you have an exceptional taste. You're, you're different. You're special because of how you taste. It's just like, it's, it's, yeah. It's yeah. just, how can you not be extraordinarily flattered and also kind of in love? Like, right. you know. <laughs> well, and it's not a word that I think is as familiar in the horror community in that way. But mm. the romance community uses it all the time. I'm not even sure if there's a romance novel out there that doesn't address taste at some point because it is the most intimate sense we have. And so like, you know, it does, and it does character work too. So that if, if there's a kiss happening and let's say, let's say it's a, you know, a sea captain or something that's being described. Oh, well, he tastes like sea salt and, you know, honey tea or whatever it is. Right. Like, you know, um, cause smell is another one that that's used a lot in the romance community. He smells like leather and whatever, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever it is that, you know, if I'm imagining a cowboy or something, um, whatever it is, like these sensory things are very important in romance because they actually do character work. Yes. Um, and so I thought that was interesting that they're doing character work, like taste is doing character work in your novel. And I'm not sure how often, like, I don't remember how often that happens outside of vampire novels, mm. you know, but yours isn't really a vampire novel. It's yeah. something else, but it's still, yeah. what, I don't know. I just thought it was really, I thought it was a blending of my world in a perfect way. <laughs> Thank you. And I think it's so interesting that you're like, oh yeah, they do that in romance novels because something I kept right here like at the very top of my mind while I was writing House of Hunger was that you know this is a gothic horror novel to me but from to Marion for the bulk of this novel it is a romance yeah and you know for the that is her lived experience so I had to kind of keep that in mind as I was writing and it was something that I wanted I wanted that to be kind of clear to the reader that like even though we kind of as the readers can zoom out and see okay this book says gothic horror there's blood on the cover we know that this is going to turn at some point for Marion she doesn't know all of those things she's not aware of the genre that she's that her story kind of falls under so she's living a romance for a large portion of the book and and I think that the things that she notices and the way that she feels, I did want it to be kind of reminiscent of those types of stories. And I always feel like it's a high compliment if my work is ever compared to romance because I love, you know, romance is great. And mm-hmm. I think that romance authors, they do something so amazing. I think when it comes to really rooting readers in your body, I feel like I'm so aware of my senses, like you said, taste and smell, especially when I'm reading romance, like a good romance book. And um, I think that that's always something as an author that I strive for. There's things about really every genre that I'm trying to like kind of weave into my work things I think that certain genres we just really excel in and for romance that's it is this kind of very visceral feeling between like the senses and also intimacy and portraying character so thank you is what I'm trying to say that's like no I love that because I you're saying something in a way that I really really like which is that you're thinking of you're writing her as the, as the story that she's thinking she's living. So you're mm-hmm. saying in her mind, she's living in a romance until, you know, for much of the book. And there's one other author I know who did that. And and the reason why I love it is because it sort of subverts expectation and gives you something kind of fresh and new. Diana Biller wrote a book that I really, really love called um, Widow of Rose House. I've had her on the show talking about it. I talk about it all the time. I recommend it to people who like Gothic romance all the time. And I'm bringing that up because I said to her, I was like, you know, what's interesting is that in Gothic romance, a lot of times you get a brooding hero, Mm. but hers is like a very jovial, 
very happy cinnamon roll hero. And I'm, and he's my favorite. I love him so much because he's not in a romance and he's not in a gothic novel. The main character that. is, she's like, yeah, the main character is in a gothic novel or kind of coming towards the end of her gothic novel, but he's not at all living in a gothic. And I was like, whoa, I love thinking about it that way. And I, I think that. Yeah, that can give you like a really creative edge, you know, as far as like how how the character's thinking in terms of the kind of story they're leading. I thought that was really cool. I think I'm always blending. I'm always blending genres in some in some way. I think I'm trying. I always end up doing that. I th- I think I'm. I normally start out like I'm gonna write this kind of story this time for, I'm gonna, for real. I'm gonna stick to this like plan, and I'm gonna write like something that's solidly in one genre, and then they always end up being like a blend of like fantasy and horror, or gothic romance, and like horror or fantasy like it's yeah it always ends up that way but I do think it's super cool um I can't get away from it I love the setting I think it's very lush I want you know I want all the movies like this I love a lot of this old 90s old 90s I hate saying that (laughs) that ages me but you know like the whole interview with the vampire Dracula like all of those settings were just these lush beautiful things Crimson Peak um and I, I have not seen The Invitation, but I know it came out at about the same time your book came out. Have you seen that? I haven't yet, but it's like in my Netflix like right. watch list right now. I think it was just put on Netflix. Was it Netflix or HBO Max? One of the two. I'm going to yeah. watch it soon. Yeah. Well, but I love these settings and I almost feel like they're not a throwback in that they're just historical fiction, but it feels that way. And I just didn't know if that was like a conscious, like those movies or anything else in particular was inspiration as you were writing. Yeah, I I love Crimson Peak. So that's, that's one. Um, I also just like classics in general. Like I kind of grew up on Jane Austen. I love um the bbc i think it's like a uh mini series what's it called mini series uh-huh. of north and south um oh, yeah, love that, that. A good kiss in it yes i love <laughs> i love that um and so i think that those influences are all like very present i actually didn't read carmilla until after i'd finished drafting house of hunger i'm ashamed to say i don't know why it took me so long i loved that book um but uh yeah i think that those those influences are definitely there and you know the year of the witching it was kind of a very different type of historical influence but I think those the kind of ghost of those all those books and all those classics is always kind of present when I'm sitting down to the keyboard to write those types of stories um but I think in recent memory like I'm trying to think I think Crimson Peak is probably one of my favorite gothic movies recently I went to the movie theater to watch it with my friends and we all wore pajamas and it was like five of us and we all went I was the only people in the theater which was great because we were in our pajamas we went to like a late night show and I just remember being like kind of like pinned to my seat I'm just being shocked by how lush and beautiful and just stirring that movie was um yeah I remember um, Brotherhood of the Wolf I went to see in the theaters as well. All of those other ones that I mentioned, I did too. Um, But Brotherhood of the Wolf, I think, has sort of fallen off people's radar. And I think... I've seen it. It's French. It's French and Gothic and lush. It's awesome. So (laughs) I I haven't seen it in a long time, but I do remember having the same sort of vibes and, and again, it's historical and it's pretty and all of those things. So, um, and it's creepy because it's a Gothic. So love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So what, what can you tell us about what's coming down the pipeline? 
well I have a book that hasn't been announced yet but it's due like this month slash next month depending on how much time I have or how much time I take to write it or finish writing it um and let me see what can I say about it it hasn't been announced but it's like kind of a, a dark academia story um Mm-hmm. And it draws a lot on my kind of like a bit um, on my life, more on my life than maybe perhaps some of my other books because it takes place in our world. It's my first book that actually takes place in in our world, our time. So I'm, yeah, I'm really excited about that. And I'm trying to like remember how to write dialogue that doesn't sound it's from a, like, you know, like a historical novel. I'm having to like, you know, learn learn that and, and sort of um, navigate characters that are closer to myself right people I could actually see bumping into on the street and that's that's cool um so that's what I'm working on and I have another project after that that is um also set in our world I guess I'm I'm, I'm starting to transition into like things that are more rooted in our in our uh, on our planet I guess um and that one is also kind of um it's very very gothic um maybe even in some ways m- like more I don't know even though it's set in our world it's kind of almost more gothic than house of hunger in a way and the characters wow. themselves are like kind of goth and that's really cool I'm, i've enjoyed writing about their wardrobes <laughs> it's super vague i just um yeah no so but i i love the idea that um because you're an old soul so it makes sense and especially if you love the classics it makes sense that there's this idea of like well how do i make it sound convincing and even though it's my own time because you know it it is a different when you're writing yeah there's a different thing happening in your mind yeah you know and switching gears it makes sense that that would be difficult right yeah I have to get my mind out of like the 19th century I'm like okay come on like you know how to <laughs> you know how to talk like one of the, the kids if you don't have to be cool you can you can figure this out it's it's been yeah but it's also been really it's it's been it's it's interesting to write about characters that do feel like are experiencing things that are more similar to what I'm experiencing you know as a person living in this very messed up world and and trying to navigate their feelings about that and figure out where they stand and what their place is and um yeah it's cool well I'm very much look forward to that I love dark academia too um but I'm eager to see how you how you handle the contemporary world (laughs) but I know that it's going to be gothic so that's like so exciting well thank you very much for coming on the show it was really a treat having you it was a beautiful book I hope people are still picking it up do you know when the paperback comes out I should know but I think I've already forgotten the date sometime this year I think yeah yeah soon well I can get back to you with it it's gorgeous. The audiobook is also gorgeous. So y'all need to be listening or picking this up to read. And, you know, I just can't wait to see what you've got next. Thank you so much for having Thanks for joining us today on She Wore Black. You can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter if you follow the links on our website at SheWoreBlackPodcast.com. We have some great episodes coming your way, so be sure to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Podcasts. You can also support the podcast by shopping at our online bookstore at bookshop.org slash shop slash she wore black. Every purchase you make through our storefront, be it the books on my lists or any books you find in a search from our front page, will support the cost that goes into show production as well as supporting independent bookstores nationwide. Thanks again for joining us today and happy reading. Mm-hmm.